Hello and welcome to another episode of Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster, and today I'm speaking with the author of The Arkansas Hitchhike Killer, Janie Jones. Faulkner County native Red Hall was a serial killer who confessed to murdering at least 24 people. Most of his victims were motorists who picked him up as he hitchhiked around the United States. In the closing months of World War II, he beat his wife to death and went on a killing spree across the state. His signature smile lured his victims to their doom, and even after his capture, he maintained a friendly manner. Being described by one lawman as a pleasant conversationalist, author Janie Nesbitt-Jones chronicles his life for the first time and explores reasons why he became Arkansas's hitchhike killer. Janie Nesbitt-Jones began her journalism career by writing features for the River Valley and Ozark edition of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. After finding her niche as a true crime writer for AY Magazine, she acted as a consultant for Investigation Discovery. With her husband, Wyatt Jones, she co-authored two books, Hiking Arkansas and Arkansas Curiosities. An Arkansas native, she lives in Conway with Wyatt, their two dogs, and two cats. Janie, thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure. First, let's journey to the town into which Red Hall was born. It was a pretty friendly little community. It was very small. Um, there were, were a lot of small communities in Faulkner County um, that were close to Enola. Now, Enola was a town, had a school, um, so it was like the social hub. But Happy Valley at that time was a community. Today, it's just a road called Happy Valley. And people, uh, they were pretty friendly, and they are now. They still mm. are. Um, and I can't say that about every town <laughs> in, in Arkansas. Uh, but Enola and that area, they're, they're very friendly, nice people. Well, now, I, bet, I remember reading something in the book about a couple who moved there or in near that yes. area. Yes. Uh, one of my sources was Connie Weir. Now, Connie was Red Hall's cousin. And I was fortunate enough to uh, meet her and interview her. Um, She remembered things so well. And the problem was uh, rumors and gossip. Now, I think gossip you will find anywhere. Um, So it wasn't really a regional thing or a religious or political thing. I don't know, and she didn't know, uh, why that family was targeted. Um, but yes, somebody killed their horse, slit its throat, um, and they got the message and moved away. Um, another um, rumor <laughs> that grew to mythic proportion was the story of Jonathan Harden. Mm. Um, he was a very wealthy man. This was back in the 1800s, and um, he owned an inn, among other things. He owned a cotton gin and livery stable and all sorts of things like that. But it was the inn where people would stop over on their way to usually Little Rock, um, farmers with their produce, uh, people with their cattle going to Little Rock to, to sell whatever they had. And then on the way back, um, on the way to Little Rock, uh, they would stop and stay overnight at Harden Inn. And then when they came back 
and they were on their way home, they would stop over at Hardin Inn again. Now, rumor got out <laughs> that some of those people were never seen again. And it became a, a legend, sort of, um, that, that Hardin, um, well, disposed of his guests and took their money and chopped their heads off <laughs> and pitched those heads into a ditch that was behind Hardin Inn. And it was a long time. And this was, um, it was as recent as, oh, the 1940s and 50s that um, that place was haunted. And they call that ditch, the Hainted Ditch. So, uh, Red had heard all of those stories. Was there any truth um, to the rumors about the inn? No, not at all. <laughs> so basically, it was just a friendly town that got a bad, somewhat of a bad rep from a couple of stories. Right, yeah. Um, I think it may have been jealousy on the part of people who weren't as well off. He was very well off, uh, Mr. Harden was. So I think jealousy may have played a part in spreading those rumors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I got you. Yeah, completely understandable. But something that wasn't a rumor um, is what happens with his family. And let's talk about his family a bit. His father was a preacher, a pastor. Yes, he was. He was a farmer and a Baptist preacher, primitive Baptist. And uh, he presented a good face to most people but those who knew him well and connie weir knew him well uh he was her let's see uh uncle um her father was his brother and her father was very kind but she called uh red's father his name was samuel jerome hall and she called samuel um diablo a devil with horns or without horns. Um, and he was very strict with his whole family. Um, there were 10 children, including Red. And for some reason, he, the father seemed to be um, harder on Red when it came to, be, came to disciplining him. Um, I say, and a lot of people did say, including Connie, Red's cousin, that Red's father was verbally and physically abusive. And therefore, uh, Red did not have a very happy childhood. I mean, there were times, of course, when he would get together with his cousins and have fun. Um, they used to have... Um, well, they didn't ha call it anything, but it was after the first frost of the year, they would have a, a get together and they would slaughter hogs. Yeah. And and Red's father was the one who actually killed the hog, uh, shot it between the eyes and then split it open and eviscerated it. Um, but ironically, I mean, this is hard to believe, I think, now for some of us who are vegetarians, <laughs> that people enjoyed things like that so much. It was a celebration. Yeah, it was a party. It, yeah. Right. 
Yeah. And I think that one thing, it might have uh, hardened Red. It might have um, made him less sensitive toward other creatures. But mainly the problem with Red, now I do spell this out in the book, um, he, uh, he suffered an injury, a head injury, mm, when he yeah. was about 12 years old. I was going to bring that up uh, next. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, it was a farming accident. Um, uh, something fell on his head, and he was knocked out. He was unconscious for a while, and then he wasn't himself. He was sick, and he wasn't himself for several weeks after that. And my theory about how he turned out to be a killer is a combination of the uh, abuse he suffered at home and that head injury. Um, as a matter of fact, one of, uh, let's see, they weren't related, but there was a man named uh, Jackie Anthony. And I may go back and get off track here a little bit, so oh, you may fine. have to steer me. Okay, hold on just a second. Yeah, my, my mouth is really dry. Okay, let me tell you about how I came up on this story and then remember where I started <laughs> because you'll have to get me back on track. I was going to talk about a man named Jackie Anthony and what he said about the way Red walked. Okay, I came up on this story uh, through a friend of mine. Her name was Wanda McNinch. Mm -hmm. And, and as a true crime writer for AY Magazine, I was always looking around for stories. Of course, unfortunately, there are a lot of murders and disappearances that I could write about. Um, but sometimes I want to cover one that people don't very, they don't know much about it. And uh, Wanda kept telling me, she said, you need to do a story about Red Hall. And I said, who's that? And she said, well, he, he was like the boogeyman back when I was a kid. And I said, okay. So I looked online and I couldn't find anything about him on the internet. The body count he had, that's crazy that there's nothing about him. I know. And, and one of the things that makes me most proud of this book is the fact that it is the first book to chron chronicle his story. No other book is out there about Red. Somebody did do a comic book, but my book goes into detail. You know, it's uh, like a narrative, nonfiction, uh, true crime. Uh, sort of crosses over, I think, into um, maybe a different genre. But anyway... Um, there was nothing on the internet about Red Hall. So I went back to Wanda and I said, can you give me some details? And she said, well, I remember when I was about 10 years old, um, he, he was called the boogeyman. Uh, his name would be used to scare little children. 
And so I said, okay, you were, you would have been, um, she said it was, she was about 10 years old. And I thought, okay, then it was in 1945. And she said, that sounds about right. So I gathered that little bit of information. And then um, she took me to see her cousin, Jackie Anthony. Um, and neither one of the, those people, Wanda and Jackie, are both gone now, unfortunately. But Jackie um, thought he had a collection of detective magazines, like the ones uh, you would find often back, uh, even in the 1950s and 60s. They were still very popular. Like the ones Red would read. Um, huh? like the, What's that? I'm sorry. Like the ones Red would like to read, too. Yes. <laughs> yes. In fact, I think he did. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Jackie Anthony, um, he was getting on up in years and he got confused a little bit. Turns out he didn't have the movie magazines, but as luck would have it, I got online and I looked, I was looking for old detective magazines and I found a man in New Jersey. His name is Patterson Smith, and he has an unbelievably large collection of magazine articles, newspaper articles, books about true crime. So I wrote to him and I said, now this is what I know. His name was Red Hall, James Weyburn uh, Hall, but everybody called him Red because of his red hair. So I gave Patterson Smith um, the name, and I said it was in 1945, and he was convicted of killing his second wife. So uh, Mr. Smith looked that up, got back to me, and he found five old detective magazine articles, and that was a treasure trove to me. So I got those from him. And then that gave me uh, information enough to go to the Torreson Library at uh, the University of Central Arkansas. And we went, I went through, uh, okay. And um, the magazine articles that I got from Patterson Smith gave me enough information to go to the uh, newspaper archives and the Torreson Library at the University of Central Arkansas here in Conway. And um, I went through a lot. Uh, Red became known in March of 1945. He, not only was he a serial killer, but toward the end there, he would be called a spree killer. And uh, he was captured and charged with killing his second wife, Fayreen. Um, that was what finished him off. Uh, but in the months leading up to his capture in March, he killed um, Fayreen. That was in September 1944. Then he confessed to killing a man in San Marcos, Texas in December 1944. And then he killed um, Carl Hamilton from Camden, Arkansas, 
in January. In February 1945, he killed two people, um, E.C. Adams, who was from Kansas, and um, let's see, the next one was Doyle Mulhern. He was from Stuttgart, I believe. He was a truck driver for a meat company. Um, so, and then he killed J.D. Newcomb in Faulkner County. He was getting close to home there, see. So I kind of think that maybe when he killed Fayreen, he sort of unraveled. And my theory about that is that he may have loved her actually at some point. And by killing her, it just, just sort of um, headed him down um, toward his own doom. Yeah. Um, I think it rattled him. But um, a couple of things I want to point out, Janie, though, is that, I mean, you've listed these things, these names off in the book. You you go into you do go into greater detail about this and how he, you, as you've said before, um, earlier in the interview, he's just kind of like you know nonchalant in a way about killing her. Even when he leads them eventually to Fayreen's body, he's just kind of like, oh, well, yeah, I did it. It won't bother me to show you where the body's at. No, it, it really yeah. won't disturb me. Um that kind of feeling towards it, but these weren't the first people he killed either. Um, oh, no. And another reason too, why he would be called the spree killer is because it's not until maybe I think the, the late seventies when the term serial killer um, yes. is, is developed. But I mean, you do go into greater detail, um, but there was something earlier on when you talked about his head injury, because uh, you know, another podcast, you know, brings it up almost all the time. And, you know, and there's also been like studies into this, his head injuries, um, his head injury, rather, that he suffered. You know, there's been other serial killers, Ed Kemper, John Wayne Gacy, Jerry Brudos, Ed Gein, all of them at some type, sometime in their developmental years had suffered some type of traumatic head injury. That's so, right. It's, it's pretty common. Yeah. yeah. Pretty yeah. common among serial killers. So when I was starting um, reading your book, I was thinking, I was wondering, I wonder if Red had a head injury in early on in the book. There it is. He had his head injury. Yes. And as I started to say earlier, um, Jackie Anthony told me, uh, and Jackie knew um, Red personally. He said that uh, Red walked a little funny, but he always carried his left side first. So to me, that means there was some kind of problem, a neurological problem uh, that affected his motor functions. So you combine that with um, the head injury. I, mean, I connect it to the head injury. I think the head injury caused some sort of problem with uh, his motor functions. Um, and it also, like you say, it's common among serial killers to have head injuries and that um, it, it just takes away a person's uh, inhibitions. So they act out more. They just um, don't have control um, over their actions sometimes. Um, and I, I try not, uh, you know, people may say that I'm being sympathetic toward him and I'll be honest, I think that 
sometimes I wish I could get him out of my head, <laughs> but he stays with me. And um, I think if he had been tried today, they may have gotten him off on the insanity plea because at one point uh, he says, um, um, he, he taps his head and says something like, um, I think something up here snapped a long time ago. So he, in his own way, um, knew that something was wrong with him, but he just couldn't help himself. And the weird thing, one weird thing about the way he killed, um, unlike a lot of serial killers, there was never any uh, torture. Uh, he didn't get sexual pleasure out of the crimes or anything like that. He only he killed people for their money or anything else that they had. And like cigarettes, he would steal cigarettes. He yeah. would take clocks and anything that they had in the car. And it's just so odd because... It's like he was collecting or something. Like. Yeah, but he, he never got more than about, I'd say, $125 uh, from any of his hitchhike killings. So you're kind of left with wondering why. Why would he do that? Um, because he actually had a pretty good job. I think he killed one because he could, but also he could, but he also knew before the head injury, I mean, he sounds like he had, I uh, know he had some motor skill problems. He obviously has some problems, you know, in his head, with his head. He knew that too, but he also, I think, knew how to use it because he wasn't socially awkward. He was, he was charming. We even yes, had people right. saying he was charming. He was a conversationalist. A, a, a police officer said he was a conversationalist. Yes. Um, the newspaper man that comes on later in the story uh, seems to think so, I believe. Um, yeah. He, he, I think there's part of him that knew how to use that to get what he wanted. And I know there was something wrong with him. There has to be something wrong with someone who commits murders. Right. But he kind of uses this to his advantage also, in a way. Right. He he was good looking and he did smile. Uh, he laughed a lot. Um, and when he was hitchhiking, he said that it wasn't the way you uh, thumbed, you know, just got out there and some, thumbed your way down the road. He said, it's in the look that you give the drivers. And he would always be smiling. So uh, my husband thinks, and, and I believe I go into that, that sometimes people associate um, uh, pleasant featured people, people who are nice looking, you know, they associate that with good virtue. And Red used that to cover the dark side, his dark side. Yeah. Yeah. But um, when it comes to... You write about his life with you know, we talk about killing his wife, but he had a first wife, Walsy, and it yeah. seems like he did care for her. And even when they had that, I mean, he would you know he 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 would go off and leave her, and we know what he was doing when he's hitchhiking around when he you know gets tired and goes off and leaves her for a little bit. But he would come back, and he you could 
I think he did care for her, especially you kind of get that feeling when they had that tragedy in their marriage. He felt that. And yeah. um, they try to make a go of it. He even tries farming uh, with her for a while. But yes. you, they really see the dichotomy, I feel like, in that first marriage starting to grow in him. You do. And to me, Walsy is the most uh, sympathetic um uh, character or uh, person in the book. Um, I have a great compassion for Walsy because she seemed to love him as well. And I think that is proven by the fact that when she died, um, and I believe she died in 2000, uh, when she died, she was buried near Red. They are both buried in the Marcus Hill Cemetery. Um, and there's only one grave between Walsey and Red, and that's Walsey's mother. Um, and I just thought that was so poignant um, that she still loved him after all those years. Uh, he, he was actually the one who asked for a divorce, um, and she was married again uh, later on, but she chose to be buried in the same cemetery close to Red. Even after all those years, they did have, um, like their their first child was, um, died at birth. And that was when um, the doctor noticed uh, Red having some sort of convulsion because the baby was in a breech position mm. and Walsy was in a lot of pain. And, um, Dr. Ingram told Red that he didn't think the baby was going to make it. And Red fell off the couch onto the floor and had some sort of convulsion. And then uh, he got up and the doctor said his eyes were twitching. And then he seemed like he was okay. So there's another uh, reason I think that something was wrong um neurologically something in his brain all right jane so tell me about when he was when red was arrested tell me about before we go the newspaper man that was brought in um during the whole interrogation process yes he was his name was um joe Wurgis, and he had been uh the police beat reporter for so many years um i think he completed 49 years when he finally retired, he started early um, and the cops loved him. Um, and he would sometimes even write up police reports. He would help them out. But he had a, an interesting, um, he had some sort of innate ability to root out odd, uh, unusual stories. There's one that happened much later than this period, but um when he was covering um, Red Hall's story, he got very close to Red, and Red became very comfortable in talking to Joe. And Joe had uh, exclusive interviews from him with him. And um, also, Joe traveled with the lawmen and Red when Red went around showing uh, the law officers where his crimes took place. When they went to, um, they wanted to find Waltz, uh, not Waltzy, they wanted to find um, 
um, Fay Reen's remains. So one Saturday afternoon, they took out and read, um, guided the tour. They were in several different cars. But he was always in the car with Joe Wurgis. I mean, Joe was always there. That's how I know so much. I got a lot of material from Joe. Um, quotes. He quoted uh, what was going on. Um, and Red led them to a, a ravine, uh, like a riverbank. It was on the old river road past the uh, Riverside Golf Course. And Red led them to that spot, but he couldn't find uh, Fayreen's remains. Then this uh, man named Cecil Foster, who lived um, there, uh, there was just a pasture really between him and, and the location of the remains. And he came out, and uh, as they were searching there for the remains, he came out and said, yeah, he found a skull there. And he took it home <laughs> and threw it in the loft. And they ask him to go retreat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, most people report, would report something like that, but he didn't. But he did retrieve it. And so they had, um, and he said, uh, I found this over there. He indicated a, a, a place in particular on the, in the ravine. So they started looking in that area. And sure enough, they found uh, Fayreen's uh, jawbone, uh, patch of hair, um, just remnants of her dress, the dress that she was, actually a skirt and blouse that she was wearing the night that Red killed her. And I remember this, I remember in particular um, when they picked up the jawbone with the teeth. Oh, yeah. Red said, oh, yeah, that's hers because... That, that tooth, that buck tooth, it always hurt me when, when we kissed. He was just so um, nonchalant, uh, just, just didn't seem to think there was much wrong about it. He just underplayed everything. He also lied a lot. <laughs> he, was a, he lied about everything. <laughs> You know, he would say one thing, uh, and then five minutes later, even to the same person, he would say something completely different. So you couldn't, you really couldn't trust what he was telling you, except on the, um, when he started uh, taking the newsmen around to all the murder scenes, and these were all over the state of Arkansas, crime scenes where he had killed people. There was one picture I couldn't use in the book because the quality was too poor, but it said a lot about his attitude toward his crimes. They went to um, the place where he had killed J.D. Newcomb, and then they went on to where he left the body because for some reason he put... Um, J.D. Newcomb's body in the back floorboard of his car and then he drove around because he wanted to put the body in a, uh, in water somewhere. Well, the, the Arkansas River is so close, 
But no, he didn't put the body there. He just kept driving and driving. And then finally, uh, without finding a good place, according to him, um, he had a flat on the car, a flat tire. And he drove uh, through a barbed wire fence into kind of a little glade. And there he got out and he set fire to the car with Newcomb's body inside. Um, and later, uh, when they went back with him to that crime scene, you have a picture of all the investigators and some curious people looking around. And there's Red smiling at the camera. Big smile on his face. And it just spoke to his lack of empathy, his lack of caring about the people he killed. He just didn't feel anything. Wow. Jeez, and yeah. on, on that note, I think we're going to have to call it a day. A chilly end of the conversation uh, about Red. Uh, J.D., Thanks for telling the story. Um, thanks for writing the book. And thanks for talking to me today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I have enjoyed it. And thank you, the audience, for listening. The Arkansas Hitchhike Killer will be available wherever local books are sold beginning March 1st and is available now for pre-order on ArcadiaPublishing.com. And as always, I want to thank Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the show's theme song. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Jane Bill's Unnamed Band Project. If you have an author or a book that you would like featured on the show, you can reach me at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll speak with you soon.